Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Our reading from this morning is Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 11. When the Lord your God brings you in the, into the land you're entering to, to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larg- larger and stronger than you. I'll start again. No, not really. <laughs> and when the Lord your God has delivered them to... Uh, them over to you and you you have defeated them then you must destroy them totally make no treaty with them and show them no mercy do not intermarry with them do not give them your daughters do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for they will turn your children away from the following from following me to serve other gods and the lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you this is what you are to do to them Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the, co- the commands, decrees and laws I give you today. Thank you, Christian. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Great that you're there. Uh, my name's Nick Van Ruth. I'm one of the pastors here at Hills Baptist. And we're going through a series in Deuteronomy. Uh, a lot of people ask me what would possess me to do something like preach through Deuteronomy, but I'm really excited for the truth, uh, the grace, the love that we get to experience as we study this book. If you haven't watched like the intro video we put together, uh, that analogy of why do we love, why do we follow the law and why do we love coffee or why do we do all these things for coffee, go look up YouTube, uh, Hills Baptist Deuteronomy, have a look at that intro video, It'll help us understand what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. As we're traveling through this book, we're studying it kind of um, with the understanding that it's, it's, it's like a commentary on the Ten Commandments, kind of the structure of the books expounds each of the Ten Commandments. And we're starting with commandment number one. Now, test for you. What is the first commandment? Not, that was the summary commandment, but very good, Sally. I couldn't really hear it. <laughs> no other gods except for me. That's right. That was the first commandment. Now, as good Western Christians, we don't have any other gods or any other options out there. There's like the Judeo-Christian God, and that's about it. So we don't have a problem with this. So we're just going to keep moving on. <laughs> that's not at all true, is it? Because if, if, if when God says, you must have no other gods before me, what he's talking about is where do we put our allegiance? Where do we put our trust? Where do we put our worship? 
And there's many other things that all of us, myself included, are so easy to be drawn into putting our trust, our hope, our allegiance into other things, even good things. There's things that, uh, that we, we need and want and desire. And if only I had this thing, then everything else would, would be all right. Then I'll get value and, and purpose and connection. If only I got this promotion, then I would have what I need to provide for my family. We'd be able to live comfortably, happily. And so we work, work, work to get that promotion. If only I have that recognition from my peers uh, that, you know, they respect me and, and honor me, then I'll have value. So I, I put up this mask, this faith to kind of project a certain version of myself in order to be accepted and valued and loved by the other people. As long as I'm seen uh, as someone who is very busy and, and is doing lots of things, then people would recognize that I add value to this place. So we work and work and work and keep ourselves busy in order to uh, be valued. And though there may not be other gods or deities from other countries around the world, there are the gods of busyness, of recognition, of money, gods that kind of distract us from putting our full allegiance and trust into the one true God. And when we do that, when we put our trust in, in God and these other things, those other things disappoint us. They, it might, might work out for a little bit, maybe, but in the end, ultimately, these other things will fail us. We'll be, we'll be left disappointed, disconnected, disconcerted with our lives and with, with our faith. So what are the things that we must have? Or what are the things that we can't live without? These are diagnostic questions to kind of ask of ourselves from time to time. It, are we liable, at risk of putting our trust into other things? Having other things beside or before God in our lives? And it becomes um, these other things, these other gods, if we call them that, they demand, they demand our time, our energy. And in our hearts, we begin to define ourselves based on those things rather than what God has done for us and who we are in Jesus. So as we uh, look at this first commandment, no other gods before me, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, where, where Moses, who's preaching to the Israelites just before they enter into the promised land, this is kind of like the application. How are the Israelites going to work out this command in the context that they're in? As they enter the land, how are they going to live out and practically work out, you must have no other gods before me. So if you haven't already, open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy 7. I'll do the same. And again, the first commandment is no other gods before me. And chapter 7 begins uh, this command 
uh, or ex- expanding this command. Houses apply to them as they enter the land. We heard it read before. When, from verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drive out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a lot of um, fun names, seven nations larger and stronger than you, And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. You must destroy them totally. Other translations say you must devote them to destruction. And this concept of total destruction of of these other nations uh, in the Bible is is called, um, often referred to as harem law or holy war or divine war where the Israelites are commanded to absolutely uh, destroy the other nations so that there's not a trace of them as they enter into the promised land. Now, this is a really tricky part of the Bible to grapple with. Is this God kind of prescribing genocide? Is this God, um, uh, you know, disallowing the Israelites to marry other nations? Like, what's going on? And this concept of being devoted to destruction, uh, the seven nations in the lands, it's interesting, it's seven nations, that idea, that biblical number of completion, all of the nations that already exist in there, that later on in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 9, it says they are evil nations that do detestable, horrible practices in how they worship their gods and how they even sacrifice children and, and do all kinds of terrible things in the way that they uh, worship these other gods, these other spirits, these other things. They're, those other gods are to have no place in the nation of Israel. And so Israel is to go in and completely destroy. And what um, Israel absolutely can't do in verse 2 is to enter into any agreement with them. It says, make no treaty with them. Don't go and make a deal with them and compromise and, you know, allow them to still live and actually work together. They've got their gods, we've got our gods. No, this land belongs to the one true God. We can't have agreements with the other nations. It says, don't show mercy on them. Don't let them linger around and entertain and indulge these other nations with their other gods. It also says we must not intermarry with them. Don't give our sons to their daughters. Don't take their daughters for our sons or take um, our, give our daughters over either. Uh, because, verse 4, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. The concern of this command is not uh, whole-scale genocide. It's not about interracial marriage. It's about the holiness of the nation of Israel, the holiness of God's people, that they're set apart exclusively for the one true God, that their allegiance, their trust is to be exclusive in Yahweh, the one true God, not anyone else. It's not Yahweh and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's Yahweh alone, God alone. Now, the concept of holy war, divine law, harem war, this, this devote to destruction is a difficult issue in Scripture. We're actually going to come back to that when we look at Deuteronomy 20. That gives some more instructions on how to do it. But just a couple of comments. 
um, does this, is this actually warranting an ethnic genocide in Scripture? I don't think it is explicitly because um, often uh, Moses uses hyperbole to make a, a point, um, like destroy, completely destroy these other nations because we don't want any of those other gods to have influence uh, or deceive or distract the people of God. It also, it also even looking at the text, um, if, if Israel were to completely destroy and absolutely eradicate the other nations, then why add those other commands about not making treaties, not intermarrying, all those other things? It's kind of an expectation that there will, it won't be complete, there will be other nations. The other thing to note is that historically that wasn't the case. They didn't really obey this command and actually let him down to a really bad place as a nation of Israel. But the, the point of this command is clear. Israel are to do whatever they can to completely get rid of other gods and the, these other nations, these other people that might distract them or deceive them into turning their allegiance from God alone to God and this or not God at all. And so what they are to do, there's lots of things they can't do. What they are to do is verse 5. This is what you're to do then. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn down their idols in fire. These altars used to worship the other gods. The rock pillars used to honor Baal and uh, the Asherah poles used to worship Asherah and uh, all the carved image, images, often sexual in nature or um, whatever else. They're to be utterly destroyed. Don't leave them around because you might get into a situation when, when things are left around and the Israelites are wandering around the nation. And they look at this Asherah pole and go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, look at a bit of cultural history over here. It looks fun how they used to worship. Looks fun. Well, most of it. I wonder if we could use some of that cool stuff in our temple and do things like that. You know, these gods, Asher was the god of fertility. And people struggling to get pregnant might think, well, I'm praying to Yahweh to, to become pregnant and it's not working. Maybe, maybe I could hedge my bets and also go to the Asherah pole and worship there too. And all of a sudden, with these things that are left around, the Israelites are being distracted and deceived into worshipping other gods. These items that were to be destroyed, icons scattered around Canaan, would have allured and distracted the Israel, Israelites away from worshipping God. And unfortunately, they didn't obey this command. As, as history judges and, and further on would show us the rest of the Bible. They didn't destroy these other nations. They didn't destroy these other altars and these other things. And they were led astray as a nation to follow other gods. They didn't follow what Moses commanded them to do, which was to ruthlessly get rid of anything that might distract or deceive them away from putting their full trust, full allegiance, full worship in God, in the one true God. That was the command given to the Israelites. Now, as God's people today, saved and set apart by Jesus, how are we to interpret this and apply this command to us today? Is, as we read this, is it, is it saying to us that we should go out, go to the local mosque and tear it down and kill everyone inside? No. 
unambiguously, no, that's not the instruction. These instructions were given to a, pe- a specific people at a specific time. And it was given to the nation of Israel that was uh, to go in and t- to take the land that God had given them. These instructions were given to a nation 1,300 years before Jesus came along. They were a nation set apart for God. And as they were a nation, they were how God was dwelling on the earth, in the temple, in the land. And the means by which other nations could uh, meet God was through the people of Israel, through the temple, through that land. And so it had to be completely set apart for God. Now, the New Testament has a different vision for the purpose and the point of the people of God throughout the world. A different vision of, what, of how God is doing mission uh, to the world. And that's one of invitation. One, uh, one of um, compelling one of shining a light in the dark world around us. Serving, loving, living a compelling life. God being present in his people going out into the world to show the character of God, to show the heart and the love of God to the world. So this passage is not calling us in any way to any kind of violence or genocide or, or any kind of thing like that. And though throughout history, unfortunately, passages like this have been used to justify uh, a lot of violence and a lot of things that have been wrong, have been evil. What this passage is saying, though, what we can take away from this, it demonstrates how concerned God is about his people exclusively worshipping him. How concerned God is that his people worship him alone. That as Christian people, as people who love and put our trust in Jesus, we love and put our trust in Jesus alone. That as we search for purpose, value, meaning, we, we seek those out in God alone. In no other things. And this does imply inside the church. It's not the role of the church to go into society and destroy all these other things out in society, but in the church, amongst the people of God, we've got to be very serious about not allowing anything else to creep in. Any other God, any other ideology, any other thing that could distract and deceive us away from worshiping the one true God. We can't mix and match religions and spiritualities. We can't claim to follow Jesus, but then also indulge and engage in New Age spirituality, in other religions, in uh, the God of self-expression. We follow God and God alone. He's very concerned about that. But even deeper that, it's not just other religions, other spiritualities, other ideologies, but also like, where do we put our, our trust in? When we're in trouble, where do we turn? When we're searching for value, for purpose, for connection, what do we seek after? What, what can't we live with? As the Israelites were commanded to get rid of other gods, so they don't put their trust in these other gods, these other things. This challenges us to think, what, what am I putting my trust in? What things are crowding in on my life? 
that's deceiving and distracting me away from putting my entire faith and devotion and worship in God? Are there other things that I've, I've allowed to creep into my life and take a place next to God or even before God in my, des- in my devotion? Things like busyness. Am I, am I giving too much time and space to being busy, to having lots to do, to getting that recognition and that status and that respect and that value from being a very busy person? And if that is something, then we've got to work to uh, get rid of that, get rid of that idol, that God of busyness. Now, that doesn't mean stop and do nothing, but I think it means carving out time to be with God rather than do things for God. God desires us, who we are, not what we do. Now, Robin Carter has been um, organizing spiritual retreats and silent retreats. He's done uh, one a a couple of months ago and he'll do them in the future. A great time to set aside a day to retreat and just spend time with God. Now, if that's the kind of thing where you think, oh, I'm far too busy to do that, that's probably a sign that you should do that. (laughs) And that applies just as much to me as anyone else. It could be um, money, possessions. If only I get this promotion, if only I have more things. I can't possibly uh, risk losing my security in my wealth, my house, and then, this greed that might drive us, the way to get rid of greed is become radically generous. Like just give up coffees for a month, rack up that bill, uh, what you would have spent, and then give that away to someone. Or even look at money you do have and you feel, I couldn't possibly lose that. Give it away. Find a, a meaningful cause to share that with, to get rid of that God of greed. I must I have. I can't live without this. I, if I don't have this security, this safety, then I'll be gone. I'll be lost. And it's putting our trust in that rather than putting our trust in God. What are we doing to ruthlessly eliminate the other things, the other gods, the other ideologies, whatever it might be crowding in on our lives? And a question for all of us is what has, it, what has been on your mind niggling away at you in the last 24 hours? What keeps you up at night? You wake up and you, you're just thinking about this thing. What have you been thinking? What's been crowding your mind? That thing could be another God. That could be taking the place of God in your life. And in the moments when you find yourself dwelling on something more and more and more, the best thing we can do is to pray, is to give this over to God. To whatever situation that might be, whatever we're afraid of losing or whatever we're pursuing, we actually go and ask God to fulfill that need. And we turn to Him for value, for purpose, for connection. Tricky part of all this is it's not necessarily bad things. They could be good things. 
but they've just got the wrong priority in our lives. Those things that become God, that come before God in our lives, or beside God even. The first commandment says we can't do that as God's people. Yet we keep doing it, don't we? We keep messing up. We keep turning to other things. We keep forgetting who we are. We keep forgetting that God is the good God who can give us everything that we need. And we turn to other things that we know will disappoint us. We can't help ourselves, can we? And the Israelites did it again and again and again. As they entered the land, they kept on turning to other gods. They didn't follow this command to completely destroy the altars and all the other gods. They kept on messing up, failing again and again and again. So what do we do if we mess up? What do we do if we fail to put God alone in charge of our lives? Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, actually expects this, anticipates this. The Israelites were constantly turning to other gods, and one of the great promises at, uh, towards the end of Deuteronomy, and we will come back to this at the end of the year, Moses preaching to the Israelites, he says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, uh, the blessing and the curse, and the, the curse for Israel failing to follow God and failing to follow his instruction, Moses doesn't say if, if that happens. He says when this happens, when that happens, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return, you repent, you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore you, will restore your fortunes, and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the, God, the Lord your God has scattered you. Moses says, it's not if you fail, but when we fail and we turn to God and repent, God will be there waiting for us. And this reminds me of this, one of the stories Jesus told, the story of the prodigal son. A story where instead of trusting in his father's provision, the son wanted his father's possessions. And so he took them. He asked his father for his inheritance early and he took it and he squandered it. And, and for a while, it worked out great for him. He was able to enjoy these things and find value and purpose and fulfillment and connection. He got all these friends all of a sudden when he had all this money to throw around. And he, his life for, for a moment was, was great like all, all things outside of God, it, it ran out. It disappointed. It left, left him disconcerted and disregarded and completely desperate in, in, in a place where he had nothing else to eat except for the food in the pig trough where he's working. Left in shame, left disappointed, left alone. The things that he put his trust in failed him. And he thought, I, I have to turn back to God. I have to repent. I, I've done a terrible thing. And if I, if I turn back to God, if I turn back to the Father, sorry, I go back to him, I can beg for forgiveness. I'll beg for forgiveness. And I'll enter back into the family as a slave to pay off the debt that I owe, to restore and make amends for the great wrong I've, I've done against my father. 
And so the son, this prodigal son who, who realizes that he put his trust in the wrong things and wants to return to his father, he turns and repents and goes back. He turns around, he doesn't see his father, arms crossed, looking at his watch, grumpy, waiting for him to come back and get it right this time. He sees his father running to him, running out to him, and, and running to uh, celebrate him, invite him back in, putting on the robe and the ring of honor, inviting him back into the family, not as a slave, but as a son and celebrating and having a massive party for this child that returned to him. That even though he had messed up, even though he had put his, his trust and affections in other things, when he returned, the father was welcoming and ready and all he wanted was the son to be home. All he wanted was his son to trust in him. So instead of judgment and being harsh and anger, the father showed love and mercy and grace. And that's the heart of God for those who might turn to him. Those who, even though we mess up and fail and get things wrong all the time, God is always there waiting for us to turn back to Him because He wants our worship. He desires it fiercely. God is a jealous God. He doesn't want us off dabbling in other gods and putting our trust in other things. He wants our trust, our devotion, our worship exclusively. There must be no other gods, he says. He wants our devotion exclusively. Now, an important question to ask is why? Why is God so serious about worshiping him alone? What's the point there? Why does he demand that kind of exclusive worship from his people? Why can't we mix and match? Why can't we take the best of all things and, and kind of work up a, a, a mix, mix match, a soup of religions that suit us at whatever time or place and situation? Why do we have to put our trust in God, in God's way? That's where God moves on to. Moses says in verse 6, as Israel enters into the land and they're to completely destroy all these other gods, the reason why comes in verse 6. He says, for... For you are a people holy, set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. We worship God alone because we are the chosen people of God. He has chosen us. He has picked us. He has set us apart for him. And we're chosen not because of what we've done. We're chosen not because of what we, we've achieved or done or the things we've made right or the, the practices we followed or the wealth that we have or the family that we come from. No, He's chosen us because He loves us, because His grace and mercy has driven Him to, to pick us and to save us and to make us into His community, into His people. And we belong to Him and Him alone. Of the Israelite nation... It says in verse 7, The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than all the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. They were the least of all the nations. And yet God chose them. 
Verse 8, because it was, it was, um, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the, pa- the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God loved the people of Israel and he set them apart. He saved them. He saved them from slavery and bondage to, to, to Pharaoh and to uh, the nation of Egypt so that they would worship him alone so that they would be his people and no longer enslaved to other nations, no longer enslaved to other gods, but would be his people. Not slaves, but sons and daughters in the kingdom of God, in the family of God. And we are chosen because of God's love, his grace. We're chosen to be his treasured possession We have inherent value and purpose, not because of what we do, not because of what we achieve, but because God loves us and he's brought us into his family. At the core of our identity is not based on other things in this world and what we do, our actions, our attitudes, or whatever else. It's our identity is based on what God has done for us and who God has made us and the purpose God has given us something that nothing else in this world can change. And if we turn to other gods, to other things, those things will disappoint. But if we put our trust in God, He will never disappoint. And so why has God chosen us? Why has God chosen us? Because He loves us. And why, why does God love us? That's another important question to ask. It's because he loves us. Now, let me tell you an, an example. If, I were to, if Emily were to come to me and uh, ask me, Nick, why do you love me? I'm in a very dangerous point at that situation. If, if someone comes, if your spouse comes to you and say, why do you love me? Run away. It's a trap, right? <laughs> Actually, don't run. That's the wrong answer. But if I were to say, if I were to say, Emily, I love you because you're the most beautiful person I've ever laid eyes on. She might go, oh, that's so nice. That's so lovely. But what about, you know, I'll, I'll get a bit older and this beauty will fade. Will you no longer love me? It's like, well, no, no, I love you because you're an amazing wife, an amazing mother. You serve, you love us. Um, you're, you're, you're fantastic. She might go, oh, that's lovely. But you know, even I have bad days where, you know, we all mess up and make mistakes. Does that mean even on those bad days where I don't necessarily love you and, and um, serve you and do all this, you know, when I'm not a great mom? And does that mean you don't love me on those days? It's like, no, 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 I love you for this or that. And all these conditional love, there's no real answer to that question, right? But when we, when we ask God, why does God love us? It's because he loves us. Okay, well, why does he love us? Because he loves us. All right, well, why does he love us? Because he loves us. Now, it might seem childish and circular reasoning, and to all the engineers and logic people in the room, this might be really frustrating. But there is nothing more secure than the unconditional love of God. 
All the other things that we might put our devotion and trust in come with conditions, come with conditional love, conditional value, conditional purpose, conditional connection. But when we come to God, we find unconditional love. He loves us because God is love. It's the core of his being. What he shows and what he feels fiercely to his people. He loves us. Not because of what we've done, but because he loves us. And there's nothing more safe and secure than the, in the unconditional love of God our Father. Romans 8 verse 38, Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers or demons or the things presence, present or the things to come, nor powers, nor highs, nor depth, nor anything else in all the world could separate us from the love of God. Why does God desire our worship, our, our full and complete trust in Him and in nothing else? It's because He loves us. And that jealousy, that desire for us to worship Him is a, an amazing kindness to us. Because if we put our trust in absolutely anything else, it will fail. It will fall. We'll be left disconnected, disconcerted, disappointed, in despair. But if we put our trust in God, He will save us. He has a purpose for us. He has a plan for us. He has chosen us. He loves us unconditionally. This first command is an amazing act of love, demanding our full allegiance. Because only God can give us the value, the purpose, and the connection that we so deeply desire. God says, you must have no other gods but me. And God is the only God that loves unconditionally, loves us completely, loves us unendingly. Now you might say, well, that's great, Nick, for you, but you don't know my life. You don't know what I've been going through. How, how can we say God loves us when uh, like, there's people in my life who are suffering terrible things? How can you say God loves us with, with everything that I've been through, everything that I've done, everything that's been done to me? How could you possibly say God loves me? How could you possibly say God loves me when you look out in the world and you see the corruption, you see the brokenness, you see the evil that's all around the world? How can you say God loves me when I just can't feel it? What well, a quote, Dane Ortland. Your life doesn't prove or disprove God's love. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus proves it. When we doubt the love of God and we we could look at our own life for evidence, and there are times that we can see clear examples of God loves, and there are times to remember and look back to but it'll, ne it'll never be enough. But there is a life we can look back to and see God's love displayed in full to give us full confidence for the evidence we need to know that God loves us. And that is the love displayed to us on the cross where Jesus gave his life so that even though we keep messing up, even though we keep putting our trust and allegiance in other things, we keep sinning, we keep breaking things and ruining things. God loved us enough 
to save us from that punishment, to save us and pay the debt we owed, to save us from death. God loved us enough to send His Son, Jesus, so that when we repent, we can return to the Father. And He's there waiting for us with open arms, ready to receive us back into His kingdom. Our lives don't prove God's love. His life does. Jesus' life does. So to finish, uh, we're going to remind ourselves again the love of God expressed to us on the cross. And to do this, Jesus actually gave his disciples a special meal to have whenever we gather called communion or the Lord's Supper, called many different things. And the night before he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks saying, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and he, he gave it around. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. His body broken, his blood shed on the cross so that we could be saved, so that we could be restored, so that God's love was displayed. And this is a meal given to Jesus' disciples, a meal given to those who trust in God for salvation, who trust in God for everything that we need in this world. And if that's not yet you, this meal is not yet for you. But this, this time that we'll have is an opportunity to reflect and think, where do I put my trust? What is it uh, in this world, in my life, that I look to for value, for purpose, for connection? And will they satisfy? Or reflecting on Jesus giving his life for us and rising from the dead, that historical event, does that demonstrate and show us a love that in the depths of my soul I've been searching for? So as we um, come forward, I'll pray in a sec. Uh, we'll have communion, grab bread, and there's gluten-free crackers, uh, and eat that in your own time, reflecting on the body of Christ broken for you. Grab the cup, uh, and, which is the blood of Christ, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Hang on to that, because we'll drink that together. Uh, but let me pray, and then we'll share communion together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God who loves us more than we could ever imagine. And Lord, we do want to uh, come before you in repentance of the times that we have put our trust in other things. Put our purpose and value based our identity on, on other things. And we're so prone and quick to do that, Lord. But we pray you would help us to get rid of those other gods in our lives. Whatever that might look like, however that might be, Lord, help us. Lord, help us to return to you, the loving Father, open arms, and enjoy spending that time, putting that devotion in, spending time in worship, just being with you and who you are. And Lord, in all this, we pray that you would set us apart as your people to show the world what you are like as we head out into the world with your presence in us that you would work through us to, to 
love other people, to serve other people, to share that same love that saves us with the world that so desperately needs it. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to worship you alone, to put our trust in you alone. Thank you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.